0: The following message is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. You can visit us online at orchardbible.org. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 3. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And now verses 8 and 9. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Dear Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can come to you uh, during all seasons of life. Uh, Throughout all time, we've been able to find encouragement in your word, and here we see encouragement as well for today, um, to consider others, to love others, to put them before ourselves. So help us to apply this to our lives. In your son's name, amen. So what do late nights, home groups, dinner tables, and online blogs all have in common? Each involve people. Well, that would be a lame joke. Uh, thankfully, that's not supposed to be a joke, but I listed these areas because these come to mind as venues for which you'd have discussion or debate. So when you think of it, there's not a ton of interactive discussion around or inquiry about the black and white issues of life. Those things, there's not much debate about. The, the matters are morally clear. It's more when it comes down to the gray areas in life that we tend to discuss most, and wrestle with, that is the practices that some believers question, but the Bible doesn't specifically forbid or accept these practices in Scripture. In one sense, believers tend to enjoy gray areas, at least in debate, especially teenagers or maybe early 20s. We like to discuss them, to talk about and make a case for our own viewpoints. But in another sense, people don't like gray areas, at least they don't like them to remain gray. It's much easier to formulate a system of black and white, to be able to bring our moral buckets of paint so we can kind of color in something and put it into our system of this is black and this is white. That way it'll fit more nicely into our world view. So some tend to swing too far toward liberty and they have very few blacks. In their case, anything is white until proven guilty Others will take a conservative approach, and they're gonna actually swing toward legalism. If in doubt, black it out. The topics that are debated will depend on the subculture and your time period. We may look back on some of these conflicts and wonder how was that ever a subject of debate? You know, whether you had to wear a tie and jacket to church or even women wearing pants at one time. Some topics though, like smoking, have been a gray area for centuries and will probably continue to be. Some see it clearly as a black issue and have scripture to support it. But there's been great men of God, such as Charles Spurgeon and C.S. Lewis, that have incurred great criticism for smoking. Uh, Spurgeon once pronounced to his congregation that he would smoke to the glory of God. As you can imagine, there's been English businessmen that took advantage of this. They would um, market their brand of cigars saying it's the type that Spurgeon smokes. Or you go into the smoke shop and they would have a sign that says, Spurgeon smokes across of it. He also received complaints from different parents that would say, you know, they're trying to teach their children not to drink, not to smoke. But they'd say, but Spurgeon does. And apparently D.L. Moody, another great preacher of the 19th century, he was unaware of this. Moody had admired Spurgeon from a distance and was looking forward to getting to meet him in person in London. And on that historic day, Spurgeon answered the door with a cigar in his mouth. Moody was aghast. How could you, a man of God, smoke that? Spurgeon uh, took the cigar out of his mouth and put a finger on Moody's belly and smiled and said, the same way that you, a man of God, could be that fat. So our passage today uh, concerns a controversial gray area for an area in Corinth. But the stakes were much higher than differing opinions or hurt feelings. The concern in question was a believer's freedom to eat food sacrificed to idols. Some believers felt justified on this issue and they gave their own reasons for why they could do so. They defended themselves. Others felt distraught over the matter and had even left the faith because of it. Paul gives clear instruction on this issue, and in doing so, gives a larger principle for believers of all time to live by. Unlike the first six chapters of the book, chapter 8 is an issue that the Corinthians had actually wrote Paul about, so they initiated this discussion here. As we saw in chapter 7, Paul had turned his attention to the matters that the Corinthians had wrote about. We see that in verse uh, 1 that says, now considering the matters about which you wrote, So as you know, 1 Corinthians, not the first exchange between Paul and Corinth, but is probably the third, at least the third exchange, where Paul had written them, they responded to his letter, and now here we see Paul writing back and addressing some of their issues. So after addressing matters on marriage and status, Paul somewhat abruptly changed the topic and begins a new section, saying in verse 1 of chapter 8, now concerning food offered to idols. And while the content is quite different than chapter 7, we see over the next three chapters, chapters 8 through 10, they form kind of a larger subsection where Paul conveys a building argument with an overarching principle across these three chapters. This argument shares a common principle with different applications coming off of it. So before we look at the specifics to our passage today, um, I want to first summarize what was happening and give more background on why this was an issue. In short, there were two conflicting views on whether it was acceptable to eat food sacrificed to idols. Um, The strong said that it didn't matter at all, whereas the weak saw it as apostasy or as a form of idolatry. The strong, or the more mature believers, had been Christians for some time, and they felt at liberty to eat food sacrificed to idols. They rightly understood that idols didn't exist, that there was only one true God, and that food didn't alter their relationship with God. The weaker or the newer or less mature believers, they were recently converted to the faith and they felt that for them to eat food sacrificed to idol was forsaking the faith and returning to idolatry. They couldn't really differentiate that fine line of just eating food put before them versus partaking in idolatry. So the crux of this conflict here where the two clash is that the mature believers, they were completely dismissing any of the concerns of the newer believers, and they were actually encouraging the newer believers to partake with them, to eat the food anyway. And this compromised the values of the new believers, and they went against their own conscience. And by doing so, under the pressure of these mature believers, they sinned. And some fell away from the faith and returned to idolatry. So the mature believers here, instead of repenting, they justify themselves, and they give these reasons to Paul why they can be doing what they're doing. So they point to their theology, and Paul actually generally agreed with uh, the reasons, you know, the facts that they had, but he accuses them of sinning against the weaker brother and against Christ. Instead, he points to the underlying problem, and that's their self-centered hearts. Now, while Paul didn't necessarily disagree with their logic, he commanded the strong believers to limit their liberty out of love for the weaker believers. We might ask ourselves today, you know, why was this such an issue? Why didn't the mature believers just let it go? All this is just eating food. You know, why bother defending themselves? Why not just give up on this issue? Or why does Paul even go into this in so much detail? Why didn't Paul just put a one-liner in here saying, look, guys, I get it. You, you feel like you should be able to eat what you want, but just for the sake of these newbies, do me a favor and keep the peace. Don't eat the food. And I think of it like when I'm talking with my kids, if they ask a serious question or a good question, I'll take time to give a thorough answer. But if it's after, you know, after they've brushed their teeth and it's bedtime and they say, dad, can I have candy? I just say, nope, no candy. And we move on. There's really no explanation needed there. Why didn't Paul do something to the same extent and just write, hey guys, just don't eat the idle food, just stop and leave it there and move on with the rest of his letter. Well, as you've probably gathered by now, it wasn't that simple of an issue. And as I'll explain, it wasn't that infrequent either. This issue was far more disruptive than just an occasional dietary inconvenience. Now, it's hard for us today to relate at first to this circumstance that the Corinthian believers were grappling with. Our culture has been so far removed and for so long from a polytheistic and superstitious society. So we might bring our own biases to the text here and look at this and say, eh, this is probably just an unlikely hypothetical situation, maybe just a what-if scenario. Paul's just giving them information just in case, in the off chance something like this happens, they'll know what they're supposed to do. But that's not the case here. It seems odd, you know, that Paul might dedicate a couple chapters here in Corinthians and a chapter in Romans to such an issue, But the fact is that this moral question of eating food sacrificed to idols, it was a social and ethical dilemma that the Corinthians faced on nearly a daily basis. Food sacrificed to idols was pervasive. It was commonplace and just part of Corinthian life. The Greeks and the Romans, as we know, were polytheistic, but they were also polydemonistic, which means that they believed the air or their culture or atmosphere was just filled with all sorts of different types of evil spirits. So they had two reasons for why they would sacrifice food to idols. One is the, the first one that comes to mind, you know, what we're familiar with. They're wanting to appease a god or gain favor with him. But the second is that they actually want to cleanse this food or the meat from evil spirits. Now they believe that the way for an evil spirit to enter a human was for it to attach itself to an animal or food before you ate it, so that the only way you could remove the spirit or decontaminate your food was to sacrifice it to a God who would remove it for you. And this is, I find this interesting because this just goes to show how Satan will take and distort a truth here. And then actually the opposite was happening that we saw, you know, in doing this, they were actually incurring displeasure or anger with the one true God. And they were actually now subjecting the meats to demonic activity. But in the Corinthian mindset, this meat was highly valuable because it was cleansed of evil spirits. And it was available in the marketplace because there was no way that the priest could eat all of their portion, so any of the remainder they would sell. So this idol sacrifice meat, it was considered kind of a higher grade, the type that you might serve to your guests or that you'd have at a social occasion, something like a wedding or a feast, a funeral, a birthday, any sort of festival. And also associated with these social events, the larger ones, um, was the sacrificial act or the rituals themselves. Because it's not as though they have a freezer in the back of all this you know, decontaminated or cleansed meat. So as with any event at this time, the animal was slaughtered when it was actually needed. So it was sacrificed and dedicated to the idol kind of in association with or as part of that ceremony, even at a wedding. And furthermore, if you think about it, before you have recreation centers and churches, public schools, etc., the most suitable place to hold a, a larger event would be at a temple, because most homes, like today, can't really accommodate more than 30 or 40 people. So anything big would be held in a temple and often kind of an honor or a slight tribute to that god. So perhaps you might receive an invite to your cousin's wedding. It'll say something like, the Lord Serapis invites you to, and there's just this kind of nominal association with the god in that regard. So as you can see, this is more than just a matter of what people were going to eat for dinner. This was a conflict with the full spectrum of social life. If you had a relative or a long-term friend that was getting married, or giving a banquet, or they had just died and there was a funeral held in their honor, a Christian would either have to make excuses uh, for their absence, which is not a very good long-term strategy, or they'd have to face this issue head-on of what to do with the idol food. And even aside from the, the temple location itself, um, some of the sensitive newer Gentile believers were also struggling with or refusing to buy any of this meat in a marketplace, either because it was too closely associated with their near-pagan past or they were concerned that their pagan friends and family were going to see them buying it in the marketplace and think that they had reverted back. Their desire to avoid idle food even extended to concern over the possibility of being served idol meat in the home, either knowingly or unknowingly, of both pagans and Gentile Christians. So, as you can see, when the newer converts were wrestling uh, in their conscience about whether to eat or not to eat, it extended beyond the temptation of wanting something tasty. For one, these new believers were fresh from pagan idolatry; for they'd come out of a whole life of Uh, this false reality, and where they were formerly very superstitious. Their family and friends are still superstitious. So it's quite likely now that as fledgling believers, they hadn't come fully to terms with the correct theology yet. And while they may not still be superstitious anymore, they were still a little stitious. And they still felt like eating food sacrificed to idols was a form of idolatrous worship. For them, sacrificial meat was to deny Christ. Now, second, there were associated practices far more tempting and habits far harder to break than eating yummy meat. Eating food wasn't the only thing going on in temple rituals. There was drunkenness, debauchery, sexual immorality, and the psychological effects that accompanies these habitual sins, those don't just disappear immediately upon profession of faith. So they will use any avenue to lure you back into their addictive practice. Therefore, idle foods really served as a gateway back into the practice of idolatry. And last, as you've gathered, believers would not only be distancing themselves from select foods, but they're really divorcing themselves from the whole social culture, from social occasions, from business trades, from family and friends. I mean, this was social distancing at its worst, This was truly a test of being faithful in the fire as believers were ostracized for standing by their principles. Uh, John Bloom, he's one of the authors on staff with Desiring God, he gave a good summary of this tension that they were facing. I'll just read it. Many Corinthian converts likely paid a high price to become Christians. Renouncing the false pagan uh, religions meant renouncing social customs, family traditions, and friendship networks. Some, no doubt, even lost their jobs. You can imagine the temptation that some experienced to at least give an appearance of homage to the prevailing religion in order to avoid losing employment, social status, and family disapproval. So in one way, when we look at these mature believers and we call them strong because of their understanding of theology, um, they're the ones that are actually weak when it comes to resolve and living this out. They were taking the easy route out, and even at the expense of their weaker brothers, Uh, while the ones that we say are weak in theology, they're the ones that are trying to be strong in faithfulness to the best of their understanding despite the difficulties, And while this specific problem does actually still exist for Christians that are being converted out of an idolatrous religion in some parts of the world, probably no one listening to this message here can actually relate uh, directly to this specific example. However, regardless of anyone's religious background or experience, uh, the basic problem that faced the Corinthians then still confronts us all today. So let's look at the real issue behind the situation that Paul was addressing so again, Paul opens our chapter by saying, now concerning food sacrificed to idols, leading you to think he's going to give you an answer right up front about his view on this issue. But he doesn't even mention food or idols again until verse 4. Paul doesn't give them immediate answer of whether it was theologically okay. Instead, he addressed the root of the issue first. Their Ill news, ill-used knowledge and lack of love. Specifically, the supposedly strong believers were puffed up and they didn't even care about their actions and how they compromised the consciences and faith of the weaker, newer believers. Paul confronted this matter head on by addressing the specific beliefs and attitudes of the more mature Corinthian believers as evidence in their letter to him. And I want you to note that although the struggle was primarily among the weak brothers, it was the strong that was Paul's target audience. Paul doesn't call for the weak to change, which I think is evidence that these are just newer converts because Paul wouldn't tolerate long-term immaturity. So instead, Paul calls the strong to change. Although their theology may be correct, their hearts are in the wrong the Corinthians provided four reasons to why they felt at liberty to eat what they wanted to. And so Paul addresses these reasons somewhat systematically. And although punctuation wasn't used in ancient Greek, uh, we can discern from context and writing style when Paul's making a statement of his own versus um, quoting another source. And a few translations, including the English Standard Version that we use here at Orchard, um, they actually put quotation marks on here showing the statements to indicate where they think Paul is quoting someone else, specifically the Corinthian letter, um, as he responds to their reasons. So Paul quotes them, and then he responds to their quotation or their reason by either um, giving an explanation or qualifying it. So we see the first reason in verses uh, 1 through 3. The Corinthians say... We know that we all have knowledge. Well, Paul counters it by saying knowledge puffs up. Focus on love. Second reason they give in verses 4 through 7 is we know that there's one God and that idols are fake. Well, Paul counters this. Not all know this and some will be snared back to it. The third reason in verses 8 through 9 is that food doesn't affect our standing with God. Paul agrees with this, but asks them to consider, but what about if it's an occasion for sin? And then the fourth fourth one is kind of worked out in chapter 9, where they kind of say, Paul, who made you judge over us? You know, we're free to decide for ourselves. And then Paul uses most of chapter 9 to defend his own authority, his apostleship, and then he shows how his whole life example has been one of sacrificial service, where he has foregone many conveniences himself. So when Paul writes statements like, we all possess knowledge, or an idol is nothing at all in the world, he's referring to specific points in the Corinthians letter that he's addressing. So to summarize the logic of the stronger believers justifying uh, their ability to, or their liberty to eat food, sacrifice to idols, they're saying, we know what we're doing, we understand the situation, and we feel justified about this. Food sacrificed to idols is just plain old food. It's neither clean or contaminated, and it's not going to change our relationship with God. Paul, again, essentially does agree with this logic, but he rebukes the resulting application of it. Paul doesn't debate whether that was uh, truly idol worship or not, but he says that they missed the point. This understanding of theirs only led to puff themselves up. It was of no help. To the, under, uh, to the less understanding. In fact, it was destructive and an occasion for sin in both groups. It is only love that has a truly beneficial effect. It's love that builds up. So anybody who navigates their decision-making solely based on knowledge without regard for others, as described in verse 2, does not yet know as they ought to know. Those who have true knowledge are those in verse 3 who love God Because those who love God are known by God, and they have the character, uh, they're characterized by love for the family of God. To borrow LinkedIn's tagline to nearly every email, they say, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And if you know God, and he knows you, then you have true knowledge. And true knowledge is governed by love, not liberty or legalism. Paul summarizes the principle behind this point and behind Christian living in verse 9. He says, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. It's not about being correct in your understanding. It's not about having a theologically sound defense to justify your own actions. It's about considering the impact of your decisions on other people. And look at this potential impact that can be had in verses 11 through 12. It's pretty serious. So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. This verse is not talking about just offending your brother or sister, but destroying them. Other translations use the word perish. Or ruined. Every time that Paul uses this word, he's talking about an eternal and final destruction. This is not a temporary offense or setback, this is a permanent loss of faith. And this loveless disregard is a sin against the fledgling believer. It's wounding their conscience. This isn't just applying or inflicting some sort of pain. It's a striking blow against. So the imagery that we have is a stronger believer who has dealt a crushing blow to their conscience such that it's permanently impaired. And to highlight the severity of this sin, Paul adds that this sin is against the Lord Jesus himself. From these verses, we can discern that 1 Corinthians 8 is much more severe than just gray areas that may offend another's feelings. Gray areas where peace and offense are on the line is what he covers in Romans 14. And the intent is to be firmly convinced in your own mind and not to pass judgment on one another. But as we've seen today, 1 Corinthians is different than that, 1 Corinthians 8. Still dealing with gray areas, but with the potential to snare immature believers back into past practices that would result in their apostasy. Now with the stakes this high, Paul reasons in verse 13, If what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again. So I will not cause them to fall. Basically, if Christ died for this brother, then Paul can die to this liberty. Overall, in response to the Corinthians' reasons for self-justification, Paul doesn't disagree with the facts, but tells them to take the focus off of themselves and to make decisions that are loving and helpful to others. Paul goes on to expand this others-centered principle, illustrating it with the example of his own life in chapter 9. In chapter 9, Paul defends his apostleship and he emphasizes that despite his right to earn a living from his ministry, he has always served free of charge. He also remained unmarried and he kept his conduct in accordance with whomever his audience was. Paul explained in verse 12 that he'd rather cope with any difficulty or restraint than create obstacles to the gospel. He said in verse 19 that though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Continuing in verse 22, he says, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this all for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Paul continued to elaborate on matters of liberty and idle food in chapter 10. He returns to that. And he summarizes his response of this whole larger section of chapters 8 through 10 in verse 23 of chapter 10 by countering a slogan that perhaps was a favorite of theirs. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. They might say all things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So if it harms your brother or sister, then you are no longer at personal liberty to partake in it. That is the governing principle of the larger section of chapters 8 through 10. Now, lest we think that the main point here is just How about we just limit the liberty and it would be better to play it safe uh, not to offend anybody? That might be the easy approach, but it's still an incorrect one. We don't want to swing the pendulum too far and take a cautiously legalistic approach, as in better safe than sorry. So I want to share with you another story in scripture concerning food sacrificed to idols. But instead of knowledge giving way to excess liberty, here we see this time it was long-held traditions that gave way to loveless legalism. I'm actually describing the cause for the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, which probably preceded Paul's letter to the Corinthians by maybe about four years. Um, instead of seeing learned believers insisting on liberty, here we see these long-practicing Jewish converts who are still insisting on legalism and adherence to the law of Moses. This was causing troubled, unsettled minds on part of the new Gentile converts. Verse 1 describes that there were men that came down from Judea who were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And of course, this is more than just circumcision. In verse 5, they asserted that the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and church leaders had a heated debate about the issue, and Peter weighs in at verse 10, advocating for liberty, saying that, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on their neck that, w- that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? After additional discussion, they agreed not to trouble those of the Gentiles who turned to God. And they communicated in a letter in verse uh, 28 that it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. And this is what they tell them to do that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, that you abstain from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Now, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Now, it's not surprising to see food sacrificed to idols on this list again. It was a a frequent culture clash. And here we see a list of a few practices that the apostles and elders asked the Gentiles to abstain from, but not because they were necessarily uh, sinful, but rather for unity with the Jewish brothers who would be offended by them. Now, if you were paying good attention, you'll have noticed that sexual immorality or fornication was on that list as well. MacArthur uh, was helpful to point out that since fornication is unquestionably sinful, this was probably referring to marriages between blood relatives, uh, something that was prevalent in the Greek culture and apparently still is actually in northern Africa and the Middle East today, um, but is strictly forbidden by Judaism. The point that I want to make and the point that this letter from the Jerusalem Council is making it was not to provide black and white guidance on the morality of various Gentile cultural practices. Rather, it was to provide some basic guidelines that would keep the peace and prevent Gentiles from losing heart and potentially forsaking the faith. Now imagine yourself for a moment in the shoes of one of these Gentile converts. Let's say you had just received the gospel with great joy and hope of salvation by grace, only to be told later by more seasoned believers that actually now you need to break with culture, get circumcised, and keep the whole law of Moses. Would you not feel like the gospel of grace was then a bait-and-switch technique and that this newly explained law-based Christianity is not at all what you had signed up for? I imagine that the new converts were ready to throw in the towel and reject the faiths, and when they... And when they see this, they say, you know, this is not what we signed up for. So when they receive this letter in Antioch, we see in verse 31, it says, when they read it, they rejoiced because of the encouragement. These new converts avoided apostasy by being spared from this loveless legalism in the same way that if you were to limit loveless liberty in 1 Corinthians 8 would also have prevented apostasy. Both loveless liberty and loveless legalism have a destructive effect on others. In areas that are not clearly forbidden in scripture or accepted, we need to consider how refraining from or embracing a practice will not affect just our own conscience, but also the conscience of others, believers and unbelievers alike. What might be safe for you or for one may not be safe for another So what might this look like in Littleton today? Many have applied this passage to navigating gray areas. Some of these might be drinking and dancing, makeup or modesty, music or movies, smoking or Sundays, what you can do on Sunday. Um, And while these are important issues to think through, much of the tension that surrounds these type of issues or topics is more reminiscent of uh, Romans 14. You know, the general principle of loving and valuing others and over liberty still applies. However... These topics are usually occasions for quarreling or um, disrupting the peace, but they're not occasions for apostasy rooted in a return to past practices. So to find an analogy that's suitable to 1 Corinthians 8, uh, Blomberg points out there must be at least a threat to Christian freedom, a potential stumbling block rooted in past practices, and a Christian brother or sister that might be actually led into sin and potentially forsake the faith. Now, sometimes the same topic could either be a Romans 14 issue of offense or a 1 Corinthians issue of potential apostasy. And the distinguishing factor is not the issue itself, but the former context and the potential stakes at hand. Now, for example... Drinking and endorsing alcohol in front of a person who was raised a teetotaler and and remains that way is probably a matter of seeking peace, per Romans 14. There's probably not a concern that this person is going to leave the faith due to your influence. However, drinking and endorsing alcohol in front of a new believer that's converted out of an addictive and alcoholic former lifestyle is an example of 1 Corinthians 8. Your liberty without loving consideration could jeopardize the believer's newfound faith and return their risk to their former lifestyle." A believer needs to use love-based critical thinking when considering gray areas. And the degree of helpfulness or harm will depend on that person and the circumstances. For some, it's not even about the practice itself, but the surrounding context. Stated another way, maybe it's not about the meat that's being eaten, but where that meat's being served. Who else will be there? And what else is happening uh, in association with it? Let me tell you a story about how 1 Corinthians 8 might play out in uh, Littleton today. And we'll call the strong believer Steve, strong Steve, and the weak believer Wes, weak Wes. Now, in our example, Steve is actually one of the elders here from several years ago. Now, I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that. Um, No real story here. This is all made up. um, But one that I created to make the point, and I think it's one that's not too improbable either. So, meet Wes. Wes is a brand new believer in his late 20s who just responded to the gospel a few weeks ago after hitting rock bottom. Wes is excited to grow, to leave his old life of partying and drugs behind, and everything in his old life is all that he had known, and his future seems pretty uncertain. He's never seen this before. Everything is so new, but Wes is committed to change and to becoming a better person. Wes stops any kind of drinking or smoking. He even decides that he probably shouldn't listen to secular music anymore. Memories are too raw and too recent. Wes tries drinking kombucha, running in the morning, and takes the K-Love 30 day challenge. Wes had heard an analogy of fighting the good fight or beating his body. So he figured maybe that's how people can listen to only K-Love for 30 days. Wes is really trying to change his life. The truth is that Wes hates K-Love and misses quality 80s music, but he threw away his Grateful Dead albums because there are too many specific memories of acid trips associated with certain songs. And while Wes likes the idea of being in shape, he's never been a runner. And that runner's high that people talk about doesn't even touch his nerves, which are accustomed to much different types of highs. As for drinking, he's 20 days sober now, and of course, Wes still likes beer, but even the idea of one drink still just feels wrong to him, and he fears being enslaved again. This new journey has been tough, but he remains optimistic. Now, Wes hears a sermon that encourages believers to get connected in home groups, so he visits a home group, and one member in particular, Steve, is very passionate and vocal. He seems to have really great insights and likes to challenge cultural norms and to encourage individuals to think for themselves. That night, Steve makes a comment that confuses Wes. Steve says it's wrong to be legalistic and rules-oriented. Steve was raised in a Southern Baptist home himself and resented restrictions. He said there's nothing wrong with drinking or smoking in moderation. In fact, he even brews his own beer at home and claims to enjoy cigars. At that, Steve actually runs inside, grabs a couple of beers that he had bottled just the week before and passes them around. Everyone grabs one without hesitating, except for Wes. Steve asked Wes, "Well, what was the matter?" Wes replied, I thought it was wrong for Christians to drink. Steve laughingly replied, well, who told you that nonsense? Steve rattled off a few verses about how Jesus and the disciples drank, how Paul even drank, and how pastors and elders are allowed to drink, as long as it's not too much. He also mentioned that some respected preachers and theologians that Wes had never heard of, like Luther, Spurgeon, and C.S. Lewis. Wes gave up. Clearly, Steve knew more, and Wes couldn't debate, so he joined in. By the end of the night, Wes was a wreck inside. Driving home, he felt so guilty, and yet he had finally felt alive again. It reignited feelings that he hadn't had in weeks now. He passed the liquor store on the way home and couldn't resist. Besides, maybe Steve was right. Maybe Wes was blindly adhering to silly rules anyway. Yet it still felt wrong. Why did no one else at the study feel it was wrong too? He figured he'd just grab one pack and go home. Of all nights, this is the one night that Wes runs into two of his close friends who were stockpiling for the night. They were so excited to see him and begged Wes to join them that night. The truth is that Wes had missed them too. He missed all of it. He missed having old friends that went back years instead of new acquaintances. His conscience was already conflicted. He had already fallen tonight. What would it matter if he fell further? After finishing his sixth drink, Wes let go of any remaining reservations and slipped back into his formal routine. He woke up at 11 a.m. the next day with a terrible headache and deep shame. He couldn't remember what had happened but could probably guess from prior experience and the girl asleep next to him. His old friend walked in and smiled and said, glad to have you back. Wes wondered what the guys at study would think of him if they could see him now. He decided he'd rather not find out and that he wouldn't be going back. In fact, he finally felt comfortable with himself again. This is the life that he knew with the people that liked what he liked. Wes was tired of kombucha, running, and bad music. If Christians were divided on opinions and hypocritical rules, then maybe this wasn't for him after all. He'd rather be true to himself and go where he felt accepted. After a long pause, Wes sat up and said, yeah, it's good to be back. Now, did Steve actually say anything theologically incorrect? Perhaps not. Was it insensitive? Probably even to the mature believers, yes, but especially for Wes. According to Paul, Steve sinned against Wes and Jesus. But it wasn't because Steve was a false teacher. Rather, because Steve didn't look beyond himself. Steve was more interested in explaining, expressing his own opinions and demonstrating his own knowledge than he was in discipling a new believer. What Wes needed in this early season of Christianity was not a nuanced understanding of liberty, but he needed fellowship, support, and prayer. Now, before we wrap up, for those who might feel off the hook, I want to extrapolate this principle of love-based critical thinking a bit further. Perhaps you're thinking, I don't really have any habits that would entice or encourage an immature believer back into a sinful lifestyle. So I can check off this box and you know, hope for something better next week. I suppose that's a good thing if that's true, um, but it's not that cut and dry here. There is more to this principle behind the exhortation given in our passage. Paul wasn't just exhorting the mature believers to be cautious with their freedom so as not to make their brother stumble. That was one application and probably the main application of the principle that true knowledge requires love and not just love of God, but love of others. But there's more than one application to this principle. True discernment in any area of life requires knowledge and a loving consideration for others. To live a wise and discerning life, whether it's what you embrace or refrain from, but also in how you use your time, talent, and resources, that sort of decision-making and planning will involve more than just thinking about yourself. So take a moment to reflect on that. When you hear the phrase, it takes discernment to live a wise life, how many of us assume that it involves self-reflection introspection with scripture to make sure that I am living a godly life or that I am growing in godly character and am in compliance with scripture. It's largely internal and self-focused. Well, Paul asserts that any discernment and godly decision-making in life involves lovingly considering the welfare of others. So I'll close with the saying from actually the 1600s, that has since become a motto of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity, truth, and love. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for your son. Thank you for the good news that it's not about our performance, that it's about what he's done for us, that it's about our relationship with you. Thank you for welcoming us into your family. Thank you for the freedom that we have in your son. And help us to use this freedom for a blessing to others, to serve others. What a blessing it is to be free from the law, to have the ability to make decisions with your spirit. Help us to make decisions that help others and help ourselves and glorify you. In the name of your son, amen.